Tim and Brian. Hello and welcome to Super 2, the Providence Journal's Red Sox podcast. I'm Tim Britton, joined as always but for the last time by Brian McPherson. What's up, Brian? How are you doing, Tim? I'm going to ask you what uh, Red Sox fans have been asking David Ortiz for the last 18 months, which is, are you sure? I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Having gotten to... I was away for the weekend in Toronto, which was a great place to do my last road trip, by the way. Like, I, I don't know that I would have picked a different place because I love everything about going to Toronto. Um, but having been away for the weekend, but then getting to come home while you were in Texas and go to the pool with my wife and daughter on 4th of July was another reminder of the things that you get and don't get and are able to experience and not able to experience with um, with the industry we chose. And I'm... Um, glad I got to do it for a really long time and had a blast working with you and a lot of other people. Um, but like David Ortiz, I am at peace and I don't, do not expect a, a triumphant return in the middle of next season. Does the way that the Red Sox are playing currently, uh, they've won, we're recording this Wednesday morning, the Red Sox won six in a row and eight of the last nine. Uh, I think they're outscoring teams 67 to 25 in that nine game stretch. Uh, how does that not win you back? Because would they be playing like this? Were they not inspired by my departure? I mean, isn't this like like a, a major trade to shake things up? Like they heard that I wasn't going to be covering the team anymore and it lights a spark under them. Like if I hadn't made that announcement, who knows what would be happening now? Right. I mean, Hanley Ramirez is hitting well because the media finally told him that he couldn't hit left-handers. Uh, and the team is playing well because uh, they want they're, they're nostalgic for you uh, to, to stay covering them. That's That seems like the relationship this team has with the media in general, right? Absolutely. I would say the way David Price pitched in Texas on, on Tuesday night is directly correlated to his feelings of affection for the media. Uh, but the Red Sox are playing really well. Uh, I think I forget if I, if I said this on this podcast or on like a radio appearance or something, that I'm just kind of waiting for them to have like this 9 or 10 game winning streak where they played really well. Uh, and this appears to be it. Uh, so if I didn't say it on this podcast, I, now I, I feel like I can say it now uh, and it's kind of self-fulfilling in that regard. Um, that that you know the offense is, is looks as deep as it's looked all year. With uh, Christian Vasquez had three hits last night. Zue Lin got on base four times. They had 14 hits from the bottom four in their order, uh, which is you know a, a pretty impressive achievement. Um, you know they scored 11 runs with Mookie Betts going 0 for 6 and grounding into a double play. Uh, you don't, you don't see a lot of teams able to do that uh, in a game. The the pitching staff is starting to come into form. Uh, sales still been great. Uh, Price was really good last night. Drew Pomerantz has pitched better. Eduardo Rodriguez should be back after the All-Star break. Um, even Rick Porcello had a, a nice game on Monday night. Uh, and then defensively, they've looked outrageously good in the two games in Texas. They've had, you know, Pedroia made the play on Monday night off the carom uh, in the ninth inning. Uh, that was as as good a play maybe as as he's made in the seven years of been covering the team. Uh, Betts and Benintendi each made kind of highlight reel catches on Tuesday night. Uh, so it seems like everything is clicking for them, uh, and that this is kind of where they're they're starting to create some separation in the American League East, where they have the four game lead going into Wednesday, which is uh, tied for the largest that that any team has had in the division. They've outplayed the Yankees by eight games uh, in the last. Uh, like 22 days uh, to go from four back to four up. Uh, it seems like this is the moment where they're trying to break away from the pack. Yeah, and, and the encouraging thing is that there's not a whole lot of this 
that feels unsustainable. I mean, setting aside, of course, the fact that uh, Zhu Weilin is the best shortstop in in the American League or third baseman, depending on where he's playing, because he has the same OPS as Andrew Bogarts, and clearly that's that's sustainable, and we all predicted it. Um, but otherwise, it's not nothing that's happening now is particularly outrageous. And I guess the biggest development is the stabilization of the of the starting rotation, and the fact that you know Drew Pomerantz has been a real key in this stretch. David Price has been a real key in this stretch for those guys to pitch the way you would expect them to pitch. And then especially when you line it up against the Yankees, who have had big question marks against their starting about their starting rotation all season and continue to have question marks, the fact that the Red Sox seem to be kind of stabilizing. Um, into a into a starting rotation that you know that looks like an asset that's keeping them in every game. You know they're able to use Joe Kelly strategically. You know not back to it doesn't hurt them that they're not using him back to back. That they're not having to lean too heavily on that bullpen that still feels a little bit shaky. You know that the Doug Fister has pitched like it's sort of funny. Doug Fister's got a four nine one ERA in his two starts, but he's pitched okay. And you know he's if you go six innings and three or four runs which is what he's done like that's not great it's not a great era but there are different ways of getting to a five era and that one with the red sox offense as constituted and with their bullpen as constituted i.e you know craig kimbrell makes games eight innings long because craig kimbrell's untouchable um it's it's okay and basically they're not they're not ever getting blown out of games they're winning some games late they're winning some games in extra innings and they're winning some games in blowouts and sometimes if you score 11 runs it doesn't matter if you give up four runs in in six innings because that's all you need for an offense that is clicking the way it is now um, to win games and you know Mookie Betts has has been the story of late you know it was was kind of interesting the way the all-star results went because I think when the players did their voting um, a few weeks ago Mookie Betts got in on the players' vote as a reserve. Now he's starting, replacing Mike Trout. But he was voted in by the players. When they when they voted, it seemed like Xander Bogarts had a better all-star case than Mookie Betts because Betts hadn't really gotten going yet, um, and Xander Bogarts was hitting like three thirty. And since that vote, you know, which resulted in Bogarts being on the Bogarts missing out and ending up on the final vote, and um, Mookie Betts getting in. Betts has really caught fire. And now, of course, Mookie Betts looks like a better all-star pick than Zeno Bogarts. Um, and Betts now is is on the sort of pace that you figure if he keeps this up, like this is the sort of MVP type of case that you could see. Um, you know, we talked about this a month ago, I think, when, when Trout went down. Some of us wrote, like, I, I know I wrote about it. We talked about it a little bit. That, like, this is the sort of Mookie Betts that, that wins an MVP. And we're sort of waiting for this Mookie Betts to come about. Um, drives in eight in Toronto on Sunday, just dominates that game. And yeah, if Hanley Ramirez is coming around a little bit, which it seems like he is, if Andrew Benintendi is digging out of his slump a little bit, um, and if Mookie Betts is a superstar, like you can get away with some a thinner lineup. You know, obviously you don't love a lineup that has Lynn and Morero in it at the same time a lot of the time at the bottom of the order. But this team clearly is capable of scoring runs with that lineup. The defense has been stabilized with with Lynn and Morero there at third base. Um, which has been really important for the starting staff, and the starting rotation has been really good. And you know, as much cynicism as Drew Pomerantz gets, like he's been a really important. He's got a sub three ERA over the last six weeks. He's been a really important starting pitcher for them. And you know, maybe he doesn't carry a sub three ERA the rest of the season, but he's certainly pitching far more like a, a mid rotation starter than he was back in May when you saw starts that were three and four innings long and, and were really sort of wrecking things for the, the entire pitching staff. Yeah, I, I want to ask you about two positions on the field. Um, first is, is third base. That will probably take a while. Um, 
like Benintendi was asked last night about Sue Lin, uh, about you know you played with him in Double A last year. Did you did you think this was something he was capable of? And Benintendi kind of like nicely, po- politely nodded and was like, oh yeah, you know he's he's always been able to control the strike zone and well, and he can do different things with the bat. And I just wanted to be there, being like, this guy had a 580 OPS last year in Double A. No, you didn't think he could do this at the major league level this quickly. Uh, so you've got Lynn and Marrero both hitting really well uh, over the last week or 10 days. Um, and, and obviously they, they bring a competent glove there. Uh, do you think that in any way changes their thinking about third base? Uh, and then we'll get to the other position that I have a question about later. Thinking in terms of acquiring someone? Is that what you mean? Yeah, like, like, do you think uh, that this is enough? Because they've got, okay, you've got Lynn and Marrero in the majors right now. You've got Brock Holt and Pablo Sandoval rehabbing. You've got Josh Rutledge about to start a rehab assignment in the next couple, next week or two. Uh, and you've got Johnny Peralta in AAA. You've got a lot of different, uh, less than ideal candidates to play third base for you. Do you have enough of those guys to get you through this season? Or do you think they still need to go out and get someone? No, I think I, I think you still go out and get someone. Um, I think your best roster at this point has um, has Lyndon Marrero as reserves. You know, especially if Holt and Rutledge are out for a while. I mean, you want you want those guys just like you started the season with with Holt and Rutledge as ideally as reserves. You know, Sam Travis is is nice to have, and he would be sort of a playoff bat, an extra bat when you can shorten your pitching staff. But given the positional versatility, I think your best roster still has has a, a Todd Frazier, Mike Moustakis, whoever um, type third baseman on it with, with Lynn and Marrero able to back up a lot of different positions. I think that's a really strong roster all of a sudden. And that's one of the things that's encouraging, too, is that, I mean, third base, yes, they've performed well, Marrero and Lynn. It still feels like a hole that could be plugged in the fact that they're, that these two, have, or the fact that the Red Sox have won, you know, six straight at this point um, without having plugged that hole yet is encouraging because you could see, like, you can't win any more in the span of six games than six games. But if those guys were to tail off, which you would think would happen, then there's there's room for improvement there. There's room to kind of bolster that back up again. So you know, if, if you make a deal and you can get an impact third baseman, you know, it doesn't have to be a number three hitting type third baseman. It can be a guy who fits pretty well in the number seven spot in your batting order. If you have that kind of guy who who also um, plays good defense and you don't take a step back in that way. You know, then then this team looks pretty impressively well-rounded because the emergence of someone like Lynn who can hold his own in the major leagues is so important. You know, it's going to be, continue to be important because you, know, you still don't know what you're going to get from Dustin Pedroia the rest of the way. Like, there's a lot of season left. There's a lot of season left even for someone like Bogart. There's a lot of season left for, for these guys to get hurt. Um, Pedroia, obviously, is the one that you're especially concerned about. And not even just get hurt, but wear down. And if you can have Lino Marrero play second base once a week and get Pedroia off his feet, that's really helpful. Um, but you can't really do that as long as they're having to play third base every day. So I do think there's still room to, to add a third baseman um, and impact third baseman if, if the price is right. And then all of a sudden you just you look at the roster and at, at all the key spots, the positions and the starting rotation at the very back end of the bullpen, then there aren't really any glaring holes anymore. You know, the catchers aren't hitting all that much, but that's okay because they're both really good defensively. And if that's the only spot where you're not hitting, I think you can get away with that. Yeah, you have a, if you had a choice between, okay, we can get a third baseman or a relief pitcher, do you still think third base is the top priority? Yeah, I do. And I, at some point, I want to see some of these relievers from Pawtucket, too, or at least would be interested. 
you know, yes, it would be nice to have a better eighth inning guy. You know, you kind of what's going on with Joe Kelly is a little bit worrisome, but you know, they seem optimistic at least outwardly that he'll be able to pitch back to back down the stretch. That they're just kind of managing their way through the season with him. The fact that it's gone okay in that middle relief is encouraging. I think you know, if you've got a strong starting rotation and you've got nine positions, or I guess the other eight positions on the field plus DH. Um, that you can feel pretty good about generally producing and holding your own. I think that's a, that's a team. Honestly, this team with a third baseman wins the American League. He's going away, I would think, given given what you're seeing the rest around the rest of the division. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, I, I don't know that you have to shoot very high for a third baseman. Like, you know, uh, Moustakis is probably the guy that we've talked about the most. Um, but he's, a, you know, the Royals might not be selling now. Uh, which may or may not be good for them long term, uh, and the the price on him has probably come up as he's played really well. Uh, whereas you know a, a Todd Frazier doesn't cost you very much, uh, or you wouldn't think would cost you very much, uh, and he's hit better of late. Uh, and is a guy who can play the position well defensively uh, and can pop one over the monster here every now and again, and and would seem to be the kind of guy who fits what you were talking about as you know a seventh hitter in the lineup, uh, who who can kind of hold his own there. Uh, so the other position I want to ask you about was catcher. Uh, Christian Vasquez, I mentioned, had the three hits. Uh, you look up what he's doing this year. I think when we did the podcast, what, uh, three, four weeks ago, maybe even longer than that, when we were talking about uh, kind of the numbers that surprised us the most over the course of the season, uh, that Vasquez, his offense for me was one of them. And certainly the, it's come down since. Uh, the, the OPS is just 690. Uh, but it's still, like, it, it feels like he's been more of a, a contributor offensively than than I expected. Still at that level, uh, do you th- like, like how how much can they count on Vasquez and Leon being good enough there uh, down the stretch of the season uh, as as I guess their their eighth or ninth hitter uh, in your mind? I think enough. I don't think you would worry about adding a catcher. I mean, it's it's really unfortunate that Blake Swihart hasn't gotten going at Pawtucket and hasn't played his played his way into. You know, being part of this the way you might hope, I think ideally, if if you were expecting Sandy Leone to come back to Earth, you know, and you, you're not confident in two catchers staying healthy all season anyway, but certainly it would have been nice if Swihart kind of played his way into an option if he felt like you needed more punch there. Um, that hasn't happened. Yeah, Vasquez has come down. I mean, he's come back to Earth in a hurry, honestly. Like since June 1st, his OPS is 477. He's hitting 180 and on base of 230 and slugging right around 250. So that's not. That's not good at all, but I mean, both of them are so good defensively, and that's that's the thing. Is sort of you can kind of pick one. Um, you know, right now, basically the Red Sox are getting defense and not very much offense from third base and catcher, so you kind of plug one of those holes. That's what it seems like. They probably don't have enough trade chips um, or the willingness to plug both of those holes. And Christian Vasquez, I think, of all the guys that are that we're talking about here, whether it's with Leon at catcher um, or Marrero or Lynn at third base or Rutledge or Holt or Sandoval, honestly, plug all those guys in. The one that is most likely that the Red Sox are most hopeful that is a starting player on their team two years from now would be Christian Vasquez, I would say. So you stick with him, you ride it out with him, you you work with him, you, you get everything you can from him and Sandy Leon as well, and you try and plug the hole at third base and then make an adjustment later or just wait for Rafael Devers. But I think I think it's counterproductive to block Vasquez at this point, and given what he's able to give you defensively, just like what Samuel Leon's able to give you defensively, I think that's enough at that position. 
Yeah, you forget sometimes how quickly numbers change this time of year. I think Ben Tendi's uh, batting average went up several points last night. Um, I want to check exactly how many. Uh, you know, Betts' numbers have, have certainly jumped over the last week or so. Uh, and I, before asking that question, probably should have looked up how far Vasquez's numbers had fallen. I know he'd, he'd come back a little bit. Uh, but it was it was still surprising to see that much. Uh, oh, baseball reference didn't update yet. Yesterday's games, that's weird. So it does not have July 4th. So Va uh, Vasquez's OPS is probably like 800 instead because he went like three for four. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. The, the other thing we wanted to talk about was kind of since this is uh, the last time we'll, we'll chat this season, unless you want to have some sort of recurring guest role, I don't know, like every week. Um, <coughs> <laughs> is kind of the, the direction of this team, not, I guess not only for 2017, uh, but you know we've talked about that, that three-year window uh, under Dave Dombrowski. Uh, where do you see the Red Sox going uh, first off this season? Uh, do you think they, you know, almost regardless of what happens, do, do you think the AL East is theirs to lose now? Uh, do you think that how serious a contender are they for the pennant and for the World Series? Uh, and do you think this is the year they have the best chance to win the World Series in the next few? Uh, do you think there's another year that, that kind of jumps out even more so? Where do you see this going for them uh, over the next, uh, you know, decade or so? Um, I mean, they're obviously in a really good place, and it's it's an interesting thing to think about because, I mean, part of this is the fan base and the media environment, and, you know, of course, I'm very lazily saying the media is lumping everybody in, I guess, sort of the, the hot take I should specifically kind of say the, t the hot take media there, but there's so much cynicism in the hot take media and some of the fan base about Dave Dombrowski and trading away all the prospects. And it's honestly, it's kind of funny at this time where the Celtics offseason moves are front and center and Danny Ainge also deals with a lot of cynicism for not trading enough prospects as it were, like holding on to the draft picks and continuing to accumulate draft picks. And so he's basically the anti Dombrowski and people don't really like that either. You know, the Red Sox right now are in pole position in the American League East. Baseball Prospectus has them 60% to win the division and 90% to get to the playoffs, which seems about right. Like, nothing is assured with three months to go, but they're in really great position um, to make some noise. And I would say, to answer your question, I would say this is the best shot, I would think. Like, there's no part of the, the problem, you know, the good and bad thing about Dombrowski trading the prospects is that there's not a lot coming down... Um, coming down the road for them. Like, obviously, if Devers can be impactful in the next year or two, that could provide a big boost. You know, there's no guarantee that's going to happen, as we've talked about a lot with you know, the likes of Xander Bogarts and Jackie Bradley. Like, it took several years for them to get established and to play like this. You know, All-Stars last year, but certainly 2014 was pretty disastrous when they were counting on them. So I don't think you're expecting Devers to come in and have an immediate impact, even like Andrew Benintendi's had. And in terms of... You know, Chris Sale being the best pitcher in baseball, the best starting pitcher in baseball, Craig Kimbrell being the best relief pitcher in baseball. Like, if you're going to go into a playoff series right now, if if you can get Price pitching anything like Price, you know, I don't know how you'd necessarily line up this rotation now. Like, it would depend on how these guys pitch in the second half. But, I mean, if, if you're getting two starts per series out of Chris Sale and you have Craig Kimbrell pitching most of the ninth innings, like, you know, when you talked about do you want to trade for a reliever, like, obviously, that's where maybe if... Maybe my answer would change, honestly, if they've got more breathing room in the American League East, then you'd rather trade for a, a, a relief pitcher to feel for the sake of the playoffs, not for the sake of the, the second half of the season. 
But even now, if you have the best starter in baseball and you have the best closer in baseball, and you've got a pretty darn good lineup, as they do, you've got a pretty good defensive lineup and a pretty good offensive lineup, that's a recipe for a lot of success. And it's hard to see that getting better over the next few years. That's sort of why we talk about the window, is that they've got Sale, they've got Kimbrell. Um, they've got Sale through 2018. They've got Kimbrell through 20... Or they've got... No, Sale through 2019. They've got Kimbrell through 2018. They've probably got Price through 2018. You know, certainly the best-case scenario is that Price pitches well enough to opt out. Whether or not you want him to opt out is a totally different thing at that point. But if he doesn't opt out, that means he hasn't pitched well enough to opt out and or is hurt. So the best-case scenario is that you've got him through 2018 because he's pitched well to that point. Um, you've got Hanley Ramirez through 2018. Like Obviously, there's going to be a lot of money coming off the books. And then the question becomes, can the Red Sox spend better in free agency if that's the way they go um, than they have in the past? And, you know, obviously in terms of big big money deals, it has gone poorly for them in the past. So, you know, you're, right now, this year and next year are kind of their best shots. You know, before before Kimbrell goes, especially um, before Price goes, I think that's kind of when when you're really going to want this team to kind of make its noise. I mean, even Drew Pomerantz, he got through 2018, but then he's a free agent afterwards. Like, there's going to be a lot of turnover on this roster. And, you know, Dave Dombrowski has been successful in building building franchises, so... You know, maybe there will be some acquisitions. You know, it's you. There are a lot of things that Dabrowski has done in the past that people don't really like. But there's also the moves like acquiring JD Martinez and trading for Doug Fister. These supplemental moves that do extend windows. So we'll see how well he can do with that. As you know, Ben Sherrington's big task was to kind of turn over the Dustin Pedroia, John Lester core into the Mookie Betts, Xander Bogarts core, and. There were parts of that he did really well and parts of that that he didn't do well, and that's going to be Dombrowski's task as 2018 turns to 2019 and 2020. But right now, they seem very well positioned for 2017 and 2018. They won the division last year. They should win the division again this year, and there's no reason why they couldn't. I mean, the Yankees are coming on fast, so it's the Yankees are probably going to be their um, toughest competition for 2019 as well. But at this point, given the young core, given Chris Sale and Craig Kimbrell, it's they're awfully well positioned for the short term, and there's just a lot of uncertainty beyond that. It's kind of hard to predict where they would go, given the number of scenarios, the number of ways it could go. The, the Yankees in 2019 are going to be awfully tough to beat with uh, Bryce Harper, Manny Machado, Clayton Kershaw. Uh, who else is in that massive free agent class? Uh, they'll probably sign David Price after he opts out. Uh, I think Jason Hayward as an opt-out guy, maybe they'll sign him too. They'll get everyone uh, from that free agent class. Um, yeah, I, I think you know this year is probably their best shot just because you have uh, you certainly have Sale pitching really well. Uh, you have Price right now pitching well, uh, and that's you know you just kind of expect at a certain point that that pitchers will get worse every year as they get older. Uh, maybe maybe not so much in Sale's case because he's still on the right side of 30. Uh, but when you look at the other guys in the rotation, uh, in in Porcello uh, and Price and, and even Pomerantz is getting up there now in age, uh, that you're not sure how much longer this could continue for them. Uh, and that's really, the, we, we're thinking even longer term beyond that, which is into 2019 and beyond, that's where the the holes start to exist is in, in the pitching staff uh, and where you don't have the easy solutions for it. You've got kind of your position player core, uh, not, not necessarily locked up long term because all those guys are, are in arbitration or pre-arbitration, uh, 
uh, but they're they're controllable for a while. Uh, your entire outfield, your shortstop, your second baseman, uh, your catching situation. Uh, you've got a third baseman coming up. You feel pretty confident in. Uh, you've got a first baseman coming up that you think you you can uh, that can be a, a, an, an integral part of your lineup. So from a position player side of things, I I think they're pretty well set up for the future. But on the pitching side, you know, the there's really no one in the system right now that you say that you feel confident. Oh, by by 2019, he'll be ready to be in the rotation. Uh, he'll, he can take Pomeranz's spot, or if you lose Price, this guy can fill in. Uh, so I think that's where you start to wonder uh, whether they have to start making moves um, in that regard to whether they have to sign someone after 2018, whether they have to make a, a trade uh, for another pitcher at that point. Uh, for the, the top of the rotation or the middle of the rotation, um, you know, how aggressively do they try to keep sale uh, in that instance beyond 2019? So I think the, the pitching side of things, and, and I mean, we've talked about it uh, the entire time we've done this podcast, the lack of pitching development that they've had. You know, the Red Sox, I don't, I'm trying to think of who the best homegrown pitcher the Red Sox have had during the length of the podcast. This is the fourth season. The homegrown starter who's made the most starts for them might still be Felix Dubron. I mean, that was 2014. He was out of the rotation by July. <laughs> so uh, they, they still haven't had uh, any, any pitchers come up and, and make uh, an impact in the rotation. Um, you know, and maybe Brian Johnson can be a guy who can be a back-end starter, uh, but that's, that's really the ceiling for him. Uh, so it's it's tough to look at that rotation uh, and say, oh yeah, like I I feel confident that by 2019 and 2020 they'll be able to turn it over uh, and get younger and still be good there. And the, but that's the way you would want it, right? Like honestly, I would rather have. I mean, yes, you would prefer to have a wave of pitching prospects coming up, um, but if you're going to have a young core of position players, like you know we've talked about this with the Cubs and the Mets, you, know, you see where the Cubs are and where the Mets are. The Red Sox right now can feel pretty good about their starting rotation through 2018, and they've got Price still here, and Stale, and Porcello, and Pomerantz, and that's not too much time in the future. Like, you know, obviously, as we've as I said earlier, like the worst case scenario is that Price doesn't opt out because he's pitching poorly or injured, and then you're still locked into another four years with him. And you look at what's happened with the Mets with that young core of, of starting pitchers, and most of them haven't panned out most of them have gotten hurt most of them have had something happen and that's what happens with pitchers and honestly like you can't even if they had guys under contract or even if they had young pitchers like you still wouldn't have any idea what you were going to get in 2019-2020 whereas you can feel pretty good that you know 2019 Xander Bogarts is still going to be really good he'll be 26 at that point if you could extend him with a Mike Trout type contract the one that gets him age 29 or 30 and gives him two bites of the apple as it were you know that you can feel pretty good about him being good into 2021, 2022, 2023. Same with Mookie Betts, same with Jackie Bradley. So they're set up pretty well there. I guess the point being that whether they have pitching prospects in the pipeline or not, you would have no idea what the pitching would look like four years from now because just the number of, I mean, just the odds against any particular pitcher still being healthy, you know, that's good now, still being good in four seasons is not real high. So that's where you, you're you going to have to figure it out along the way anyway, whether you have guys in-house or not. And the the Pomerantz deal looks looks okay now. Anderson Espinosa is a long way away and hasn't thrown a pitch yet this season because he's been injured, whereas Pomerantz has been pretty effective as a mid-rotation starter. You know, if you, if you end up making some deals like that while you're waiting for Jason Grum um, to come along, that that makes sense. And then you kind of... you 
you fill in the holes along the way because that's what you have to do with pitching. I guess that's the point being that's where you would want your uncertainty to come. And in terms of a 2019-2020 outlook, a team with a young core of, of really good position players and the resources to supplement the pitching staff, that's it seems like that's all you can really ask for. And that's why you know, even with the talk of the window, and there certainly is a window, like you know, when at this point, once Sale leaves, the entire team starts to look different because by the time Sale has left, Kimbrell has left, Price has probably left, Henry Ramirez is gone, Porcello's that's his last year as well. There's going to be a ton of turnover. Um, that's also some time to add some prospects. That's time to make some trades. And, you know, the core that's going to be left, I can't imagine there's many teams out there that would not trade the core of players they would expect to have in 2019, 2020 with the core the Red Sox can expect to have because those young position players, like they've had their ups and downs and they can be streaky and all of that. But to have Betts and Bogarts and Bradley and the guys, like you said, Devers coming up that you feel pretty good about at this point, even a Christian Vasquez who's just you know he's going to be an effective catcher. Like, you know you're not going to be stuck trying to take a flyer on A.J. Przinsky because you've got nothing else to catcher. Like, you know, those sorts of things that the teams without without cornerstone players have to do. I mean, we're not even talking about Eduardo Rodriguez, who's going to be around for a long time still. Like, that's that's a guy in your rotation that you can, you can feel pretty good about. And it's hard to see them being set up much better, and that's why it's, I mean, Boston is all about cynicism and skepticism and all of that. But, you know, a team that won the division last year, when should win the division this year. Like, other than the fact that the Yankees could sign everybody in a couple of off-seasons, which, as we've seen, doesn't necessarily lead to winning. Like, free agency is really hard, and a lot of those guys do not pan out the way you, you want them to. But it's it's a team that's set up really, really well going forward, um, you know, barring injuries. But that's, you know, like, you know, they lose Chris Sale to injury, everything changes, but... That's the risk you take because the upside of having Chris Sale is just is so astronomically high, as we've seen. He's never pitched in the playoffs before, never got to. Um, but to see him in October could be really, really special. I just have to defend the Mets a little bit. You know, the Cubs are only three games better than them this year. That's true. But which which would you take as your projection? Take the team that has already won the World Series. Um, it, it, yeah, I, I agree with you totally that like the position players are always the that, that's where you want your strength to be. Uh, you know, you can you can kind of solve a problem in the rotation with one guy or, or you know, maybe one, one really good guy or two pretty good guys. You can kind of find your way around it with that. Uh, I wonder, uh, you know, if we, you talked about the Fister trade that Dombrowski made. Uh, referencing the one where they got him from Seattle, you know, brought him from Seattle to to Detroit. I wonder if he's got something uh, up his sleeve along the lines of the Fister trade to Washington, which is which is as derided a move as he made with the Tigers. Uh, but as he pointed out, um, uh, when when they acquired Fister this year, uh, he's you know someone asked him about that trade, and he said, well, you know, we did get Robbie Ray in that trade. Uh, the problem was that they subsequently traded Robbie Ray that offseason, uh, and now he has blossomed into an all-star in Arizona. You do wonder if, if maybe at the end of this season, depending on how you feel about a guy like Brian Johnson, if they look to try to spin off a, a more established starter, uh, and Pomerantz would make the most sense going into the last year of his contract, uh, kind of the same way Fister was at that point, or uh, that you, you maybe deal that guy who's got a little bit of time left on his deal uh, to try to get a younger prospect, whether it's a pitcher or something else, uh, and, and go into a season with, like, Johnson as your number five, uh, something like that, uh, if, if that's a way to kind of solidify the rotation longer term. Yeah, it would be interesting, and, and it's tough to do that when you don't have a lot of job security, but it seems like Dave Dombrowski has a lot of job security and a lot of confidence, and 
you know, that's how you pull on windows. And that's that's what Bill Belichick does with the Patriots. And every time Bill Belichick trades away a, a veteran for somebody that nobody's heard of or just a second round draft pick, you know, the fans hate it, but it usually works out pretty well. And yeah, you're right. It would be interesting to see him spin off a Pomerantz after this year, even spin off like a Jackie Bradley at some point if you feel good about Betts and Benatendi and then can add a left fielder somewhere. If you can get a lot of value back for someone who's not quite a, you know, kind of an inner circle Bogarts Betts foundation part of your team and, and you can extend your window that way. Like that's why the Patriots have been so good for so long is that they don't just play out the window and then kind of crater, that they keep adding spare parts. And Nebraska showed an ability to do that his last week with the Tigers when he when he traded David Price and others um, for some really, really important parts that have, that have helped the Tigers stay competitive, um, including I think Michael Fulmer's like the second best pitcher by war in the American League this year. Um, that was the Cespedes trade, right, to the Mets? So, like, but that's the point is that to kind of make that sort of move, Dombrowski's shown an ability to make that move, too. And that's where, if you're a Red Sox fan, you're hopeful he can continue to do that. And I bet people will hate it. I mean, certainly if he trades Drew Pomerantz, people are not going to complain because Drew Pomerantz is the new Clay Buckles in terms of guy that the fan base irrationally hates. Um, but to, to trade someone who people like even a little bit more um, for the sake of adding a an upper minors pitcher that you can kind of put in there with Eduardo Rodriguez as the young guys in the middle of the rotation behind Chris Sale would be really interesting. And then sometimes, like, you, you just you fill in parts. Like, Doug Fister this year, he's a guy that, you know, Kyle Kendrick didn't work. Like, that was a low-cost pickup that they tried. It didn't work. So far, Doug Fister has worked, and there are guys just like Mitch Moreland. And nobody was doing backflips over signing Mitch Moreland. I didn't love the Mitch Moreland signing. It was a very unwed Sox-like, you know, we're just kind of go down – and sign the guy who costs one year and five million because we don't want to spend for Edwin or Encarnacion. And hey, look, Mitch Moreland worked out pretty well. And, and that's that's scouting and evaluating. And Nebraska has a history of doing that pretty well. So, you know, when you don't need to, when you don't need to add a a middle of the order back, it certainly makes things easier because you don't find yourself reaching. And you know, if you can have the patience, like we'll see if Dombrowski what sort of patience Dombrowski have, can have with some of these young guys coming in with the Devers, uh, with the Sam Travis, because, you know, you look back a few years ago when the Red Sox in 2014, when Bradley was bad, when Bogarts was bad for a lot of the season, when Will Middlebrooks was bad, you know, they stuck with Bradley. Well, they stuck with Bogarts, certainly. They, they really kind of played it out with Bogarts. They tried to replace Bradley with Castillo. Um, that didn't work at all. Um, that kind of was disastrous. And fortunately for them, they were able to kind of keep... They kept Bradley around and kept giving him chances, and then he blossomed. They replaced Middlebrooks with Pablo Sandoval. Now, Middlebrooks hasn't exactly, you know, made them regret moving on from him the way that Travis Shaw seems to be. But the way they replaced Middlebrooks very aggressively with Pablo Sandoval obviously hasn't worked either. So if you have your cornerstone guys, if you have your Betts and Bogarts and Benintendi as your... as the the foundation of your team and you're just kind of patching around the edges with the Mitch Moreland types that even if even if Sam Travis doesn't necessarily work out you can you can patch around the edges without necessarily saying hey we got to go get Manny Machado like because as good as these guys are now you know we talk about these guys that we expect the Yankees to sign all of them like as good as they are now like baseball history is littered with guys who are really good until they got to free agency like imagine if you know in 2008 2009 we're like yeah that's going to come 
this free agent class is coming up and the Yankees are going to add Carl Crawford. And the Yankees might even be able to sign Adrian Gonzalez when he hits free agency a year later. And, you know, those guys were just phenomenal players. And then all of a sudden they weren't Jacoby Ellsbury, same way. Like the decision to, even though it contributed to those last place finishes in, in 14 and 15, the decision to move on from Jacoby Ellsbury in favor of Jackie Bradley has worked out spectacularly for the Red Sox in a lot of ways in kind of their long-term perspective. So, you know, we don't know how Dombrowski is going to approach that, approach extending the window, approach being patient with these young guys working in. You know, that those decisions are going to be what kind of determine the long-term fate of the franchise because if, if Devers is disappointing, if Devers is terrible, obviously that's not great and they'll have to figure out something there. Um, if Devers is okay at the beginning and it's not good enough and the Red Sox are impatient with him and go sign the next Pablo Sandoval, like, then things start to get ugly. If, if Devers flourishes the way that Bogart's flourished, give him some time, then all of a sudden you feel really, really good about the long-term direction of the franchise and you can see the window staying open for quite a while. You, you mentioned Crawford and Gonzalez. You know what I learned last night or was reminded of last night is that uh, fans do not enjoy being reminded of the 2011 Red Sox because I, I tweeted out uh, that the, the stretch the Red Sox are in right now reminds me a little bit of uh, in June of 2011, they were just bludgeoning teams. I think the, they had a stretch where they went like 14-2. and two. Uh, They were winning games. It was in particular a trip to Toronto. I think they won games like 14-1 to one and 16-1 to one back-to-back or something like that. Uh, and so obviously the 15-1 to one win on Sunday made me think of it. Uh, and the way they hit Darvish around last night. Uh, made me think, man, this team looks a lot like that team, uh, which when it was at its best was probably the best the Red Sox have been in the the time that I've covered them. Um, And so I tweeted that out, and people were like, why would you ever bring that season up? That's awful. (laughs) Um, So uh, another reminder to not bring up the 2011 Red Sox. And and really, if you think about it, uh, fans don't want to be reminded of the 2012 Red Sox, 2014 Red Sox, 2015 Red Sox, I think, uh, as much as possible. But that's the thing is that 2011 team was really, really good. And the key in some ways was the fact that there was so much turnover and they didn't they didn't replace those guys. Like, I mean, obviously, Carl Crawford was really disappointing, but like that was a really good team. And if there was a second wild card, they would have won the second wild card. And who knows what would have happened? And you know, in some ways, the key would be with this team, even if it doesn't win the division, to not overreact and not try and turn too much over. Because if they fade in the second half and only win the second wild card and lose a wild card game, like... Sure, that would be really disappointing given the way things look now, but they're so well set up going forward to just, you know, to not be complacent and not just sit tight, but to not overreact either and say, like, that this is a really, really good team. Um, The way that team was a really, really good team, and instead that team, you know, 2012, there were quite a few things that went wrong, and the fact that Bobby Valentine was there and you got underperformance and you had injuries and you know, you're, there were there were glaring holes on that team. Like the fact that someone like Ryan Sweeney and Mike Avilas are playing key roles in that team. You know, certainly in hindsight, doesn't look great. But the Red Sox, they don't they don't have holes like that. They have the third base hole, and it looks like Rafael Devers is coming to fill it. And it doesn't look like you're having to rely on guys like Mike Avilas the way that they did in some of those seasons, like Grady Sizemore. Like this is that's sort of the point, I guess, is that when you look at this roster and its foundation going forward, yes, they're going to need to find some starting pitching. But otherwise, there's nowhere on the field where you look at it and think, like, you know, boy, they're really going to go need to find somebody at some point. If you have an outfield of Benintendi, Bradley, and Betts, if you have Sam Travis and you feel okay about him at first base, um, you have Pedroia and Bogarts and then Devers and then Vasquez behind the plate. Like, barring major injuries, like, 
this is a team that's set up to be really good for a while with just some adding around the edges. Like, if all you need is a DH to replace Hanley Ramirez, at some point, like, you can find that guy and you don't need to spend a lot for him and you don't need to risk a lot. You know, the spending a lot is, is mostly a matter of risk and commitment and, you know, what happens if things go south. Like, they they were left in a place in in that mid two thousands where early two thousands where they were where there were some glaring holes in the roster and, and the fact that Ben Attendee has held his own like he hasn't been Aaron Judge obviously but he's been pretty good in a lot of ways for a first full season in the major leagues and that that's that's enough to make you feel pretty good that that this Red Sox team like I guess it'll be tough to make major mistakes I guess that's the way I'd put it is that. There's no reason to go out and make a Carl Crawford or Pablo Sandoval like mistake with this team over to to prop the window open or you know a Justin Verlander type contract like there's no reason to to do that with these guys like if you're going to make a commitment you're making a a first Miguel Cabrera um, contract type commitment in to use the Dave Dombrowski history which that first Miguel Cabrera contract was a great contract because it started at age 25 and took him for 10 years and he was outstanding he was the you know, won an MVP twice and was one of the best players in baseball. And the second Miguel Cabrera contract was more regretful. And that's that's a mistake, and that's the sort of mistake you want the Red Sox to avoid making. But at this point, there's no real. It would be difficult to make that sort of mistake. Like that sort of mistake would be contract extension for Chris Sale, you know, at age 31 potentially. Like that's that's what would sort of make you wince a little bit. But if the Red Sox were to shell out a bunch of money now for Bogarts or Benintendi, that's great. You want them to do that. And there's no real position on the field if they believe in Devers where you're going to say, hey, they're going to go out and spend 100 or $200 million on Manny Machado. Like, they don't necessarily need to do that. They're not going to go out and spend $400 million on Bryce Harper. They just, they're not set up to do that. And you know, if Dabrowski can find some pitching, because teams all are looking for pitching as long as he's not doing it by spending $250 million on another free agent, then it seems like they should be in pretty good shape for a while. I am going to bring up the 2011 season just just one more in one more way, uh, which is that that was the first year we worked together. Uh, I remember going into spring training and not knowing uh, anything about the Red Sox. I think the first day we worked together, uh, we were covering a spring training game, uh, and you pointed out like in the ninth inning or something, uh, while I was very confused the entire day. Uh, that I forget if it was Drew Sutton or Nate Spears because we we confused them the entirety of that spring training because uh, they did they served the exact same role. Uh, I think it was Sutton was playing first base. You're like, oh, Drew Sutton's playing first base, uh, and I was like, yeah, whatever. No one cares. Um, I don't know who that is. I don't know why that matters. Uh, and I, I forget if you asked Francona about it afterward. You just talked to Sutton, and it was like a, a fourth note in the notebook, uh, and that's when I was like, oh, I, I need to start paying attention to uh, how baseball works now, um, and 40-man roster stuff, and, and non-roster invitees, and how spring training works. Um, and so that was like the start of uh, you teaching me how to be a beat writer, uh, which is, I think, it, it when people wonder, you know, when I try to explain why I think the Providence Journal's coverage of the Red Sox is good, I think it's because it's a little bit different than everyone else. We are not part of the, you know, quote unquote, hot take media. Uh, I think that's a hot take on your, your end by calling it that. Uh, but that we do kind of deeper analytical stuff. Uh, we enjoy breaking down pitching, as other <laughs> people on the beat have pointed out. Uh, and I think, you know, you were the one who really set that tone uh, when I got there, because I, I, didn't, I didn't know how to do that uh, until I was reading you and being like, oh, like, this is how you, you, you do something like that. And this is how you talk to a pitcher about uh, his repertoire. Uh, this is a good story to write for next week, uh, something like that. Uh, so... Uh, I think, you know, one of the reasons that our coverage is as 
hopefully as good as, as I think it is, uh, is, is how you set the tone for it. Uh, and beyond that, uh, I remember uh, after the first season being at a Patriots game and talking to a member of the media from another outlet uh, who didn't cover the Red Sox who asked me how my first year went. Uh, and I said, you know, pretty well, really interesting kind of baseball season. He said, how, how do you, how is working with Brian? Uh, I said, oh, it's, it's, it's really easy. It's, it's, you know, I get along with him really well. We're friends. Uh, it's very simple. And he goes, yeah, you can kind of tell that. Uh, that's, that's rare. You should, really, you should really appreciate that, to have someone on the beat that you enjoy actually working with. Uh, so uh, as good a reporter and writer as I think you are, you're also uh, extremely easy to work with and one of my best friends in Boston. Uh, so I appreciate uh, all that you've done to help me out with the journal. And, and since this is our last Super 2, I figured everyone should know that. Well, thank you. That's that's really kind of you to say, and obviously the reverse is true as well. Um, and your writing chops, I've been impressed with from the very beginning. And yeah, your ability to come into a new a new team, like I sort of came in knowing the Red Sox because I followed the Red Sox my whole life. For you to adopt adopt a new beat and figure that out and understand the history has taken a lot, um, a lot of really impressive work on your part. But uh, you know, your writing chops, which far surpass mine, um, I've been impressed with from from day one as well. Your turn of phrase, your your observations, all of that. Um, I've been I've been impressed with them from the very beginning, and yeah, it's been really great. I didn't we didn't know each other uh, when we started. You came from New York. You were recommended by our mutual friend Ian Brown, um, and came in and earned a job, um, interview wise. And it couldn't have been a better fit. And it's been great. And it's been a lot of fun to do these every week and to get to talk baseball. And you know, I think we've been the only weekly podcast on the Red Sox beat all along. It's been really been a great experience just getting to talk baseball with you. I mean, the thing that's too bad about our coverage is because it's only the two of us and because there's so many games, we don't actually see each other all that much. You know, it's always been fun in the playoffs in 2013 and again last year in limited time to actually get to spend to spend some time together, like really covering it together as opposed to kind of covering it independently um, with consultation with each other. But yeah, I couldn't have asked for a better partner all along. Couldn't have asked for a better experience on um, covering the team i'm gonna miss a lot of it certainly i'll i'm gonna be excited to have some time at home and to get to have some nights and weekends and not be in texas in the first week of july unless i really want to be which is what you're doing and i assume it's 110 degrees there which must be delightful um but yeah i'll certainly be around and hopefully get to do a little freelancing here and there to kind of keep my I don't think toe in the water, I've been trying to come up with the right analogy, because toe in the water is like trying something new, but foot in the doors, I guess that's the same thing too. Whatever it is, the analogy to stay involved. Um, like I said, you're better at turns of phrase than I am. Um, to <laughs> stay involved um, with baseball and the Red Sox, but I'm also looking forward to the new venture and very, very appreciative of everything about the what the experience of covering the Red Sox for the Providence Journal has, has been. So I guess, unless you have anything else, I guess I'll I'll say adios.